0: Welcome to the In the Oil Patch Radio Show, broadcasting from the SR Trident Studio. SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word. In the Oil Patch Radio Show with Kim Bellato is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas, and energy industry from a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials, and more. Right here on In the Oil Patch Radio Show.
1: Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bilotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. Our cover features Brian Freed, who is the CEO of Epic Midstream, a great company, fabulous CEO, as well as a $5 billion company. It's a story that you don't want to miss. For your free digital issue, be sure to visit shalemag.com, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com, uh, to get your free digital issue of the latest issue of Shell Magazine. We also have an upcoming mixer scheduled for November 17th in Houston, Texas. It is at the beautiful Fogo de Chow in the Woodlands area. Our speakers will consist of the Vice President of Halliburton, Paul Shepard, along with the Honorable Jason Isaac from the Texas Public Policy Foundation Life Powered unit. And now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host, David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful
2: day in the oil patch.
1: It sure is. And I'm so excited because we actually now are starting to see the change in weather and it's starting to get nice and cool here in Texas. How is the weather in your area in Dallas?
2: It's been awesome. It was actually a little chilly this week. I really enjoy that first week of cold weather every year.
1: I know. It, it's the, the, the crispness that you finally get. poo or away from the heat. and It's finally gone, and now here comes the coolness and, of course, the low humidity on most days. And, you know, David, I'm pretty excited because we also have a brand-new company and guest that we're going to be introducing in the next segment. It's Carl Musen, who is the Director of Marketing, Legislative, and Regulatory Policy for Wasilla a brand new company, but a big global company. So it was definitely interesting catching up with him. There's a lot going on. Uh, You know, uh, (laughs) Biden has been (laughs) at this uh, GOP 26. There's been discussion at OPEC Plus. So let's jump into it. Uh, Let's start with OPEC Plus. They rejected a call by Joe Biden to pour more oil onto the markets in order to lower gasoline prices in the US. So the question is, why does the Biden administration keep making demands on countries to produce more oil, and or why are we not asking? The U.S. was producing energy right here, uh, the yeah. cleanest, by the way, in the entire world, um, the model for how to lower emissions, and we're shutting that. There's, the administration is shutting it down by so many, um, you know, yeah. regulatory it, changes. Well, why? Is it really happening?
2: doesn't make sense, does it? It's it's crazy. He it keeps. Keeps lecturing Russia and OPEC uh, that they need to produce more oil, and, he, and then he keeps uh, doing things like shutting down the Keystone pipeline, and you know just more and more regulations. And I, it, it's 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 odd to say the least. Uh, I, it's frankly just the agenda of of these far left wing activists um, who want to shut down oil and gas and 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 keep telling us we can run our power grids on windmills and solar panels. And, you know, I mean, that all has a place in it. They can certainly be an integral part of our power grid like they are here in Texas. Right. Uh, but you still have to have natural gas and oil. And, and uh, I, I just don't understand why this administration thinks it's better to bring that oil in from, you know, the Middle East or wherever, Brazil, Canada, Mexico, wherever, or Africa mm-hmm. than it is to produce it here. We, we have just incredible resources here in the United States and, uh, and an industry that produces it very responsibly and just makes strides every day in, in doing it cleaner and better. Right. So I just, I don't understand it. I, I, I just uh, wish he would wake up and, uh, because, you know, people are really suffering with these high gasoline prices and lecturing Russia and OPEC isn't ever going to to change that.
1: Well, and I think, though, when, you know, you say that the movement, the anti-fossil fuel movement has been, you know, pushing shut it down, shut it down, you know, I wonder that they have to be feeling the effects, too, that all of us are higher gas prices, higher prices at the grocery store. Uh, You know, here in Texas, we went through Um, you know, uh, a snowstorm that put out power, we lost power in the state because of the over-reliance of uh, wind and solar that really didn't produce in really extreme weather. Not saying that they're bad, but there's a place for it all. And, you know, our opinion is, you know, we need more energy, not less. We need them all at the table. But let's not lose sight that we need oil and gas to produce those alternative resources that are coming online, or you have nothing. And I'm wondering... If why it's not setting in yet, that uh, I know it's driven probably by money, but uh, money qua- in
2: politics. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Quality of life is also going down, and you know, just uh, let let's let's talk about the Biden administration. You know, and and how we'll stay on this topic. They published a new regulation on methane admission this week as well, uh, and that is probably only making the situation worse. So.
2: It's it, you know, and so what this regulation does, they, they've always regulated the EPA has always regulated methane emissions from newly drilled wells. They've never had a regulation governing emissions from already pre existing wells. And so this new regulation is now going to crack down on methane emissions from pre existing wells, and it will no doubt increase costs for oil and gas companies uh, in the industry and reduce the amount of capital they have to to drill mm-hmm. new wells. So so again it's a it's a regulation that's going to restrict production here in the United States while the administration is pretending that Russia and OPEC are causing high gasoline prices. Right. Uh, the reality is that we're causing high gasoline prices for ourselves in the United States. Mm-hmm. We we consume by the way a record amount of, of crude oil and gasoline in September this year, the highest consumption we've ever had in this country in September of 2021. And, and yet we still have an administration that that is doing everything it can to slow our industry, our own domestic industry's ability to meet that demand. So what's the result? The result is more and more and more ships coming in from overseas with crude oil
1: and well, you well know, That's well, why prices are higher. Well, and is it really that the American consumer is is not really paying attention, or, or are we? Because well, I think
2: more and more they are. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, let's talk about what happened in Virginia in that election and happening in other elections in which yeah. now the Democrats are losing a lot of seats. Um, and, you know, I think I've heard a lot of media pieces talk about it was the parents and the whole, the whole educational piece. But mm-hmm. I also think that people got... are what they are woke to wait a minute gas prices are 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 going up so is you know we talked about utility bills and grocery bills and the quality of life is going down very quickly with these unpopular policies specifically talking about oil and gas so do you really think that the consumer especially in those areas it was just pertaining to um their belief in this you know what was happening with their children in school or did you think that energy had a part of it too
2: oh, there's no no doubt that, that the high gas prices and high utility bills uh, compared to a year ago, you know, when you're the president, uh, regardless of what you do, if prices go up, you're going to get blamed for it. Well, this president has caused prices to go up. Right. So yes, I mean, that was a, a significant part of that election in Virginia. And I mean, really, it was all over the country. Mm-hmm. Republicans had, uh, you know, gained seats all over the country. Uh, even in New Jersey, they mm-hmm. almost unseated a sitting governor and a, and a truck driver who spent $153 on his campaign unseated the president of the Senate, who right. is the longest serving office holder in the history of New Jersey, was defeated by a Republican truck driver who spent $153 on his campaign. Well, I mean, yes, gas prices had a lot to do with that and, and all these other issues as well.
1: And again, you know, we are not uh, against alternative, uh, renewables. It's, it's all of them belong here and they're all under one umbrella and we should say we are for these things. It's just, you can't forget oil and gas either because we can't survive right now without them. I want to also say, uh, I want to welcome Continental Resources to Texas. Um, they made a big acquisition (laughs) in the Permian Basin, um, telling me about their new entry into, uh, Permian Basin and we would love to have them on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Soon. <laughs> yes, we would.
2: Uh, Harold Hamm was was on our cover several years ago. the The chairman of the board at Continental, he founded that company in 1967. He's, yeah, it was just an incredible success story. Now he's a billionaire in the mm-hmm. Forbes 400 list yeah. of the wealthiest people in, in America, and uh, they they purchased all of the uh, Delaware Basin assets uh, from Pioneer Resources, Pioneer Natural Resources uh pioneer of course is an enormous producer in the permian basin but they're they're focused on the midland uh area there in the permian basin and the delaware basin is a subset of the permian uh, more to the south and west and uh, it was a big acquisition 3.25 billion dollars all cash wow and yes it's uh this is the first time in a while that we've had a, a very large operator like this make a new entry, their first entry into the Permian Basin. And so, so Continental is a, a proven operator that knows how to do its business in a safe and responsible way. And yes, we should welcome them to Texas.
1: Well, yeah. And I'm saying if anybody knows what they're doing, it's, it's Mr. Ham for sure. And That's it's nice right. to see that Scott Sheffield handed off great assets to (laughs) Harold Ham, Two seasoned, seasoned oil and gas men. Well, David, that is all the time we have for this segment. But when we return, we will be joined by Carl Musen, who is the Director of Marketing, Legislative and Regulatory Policy for Marcella. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
3: Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, anytime for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Oilfield Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oilfield parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210 210- 471 471-1923 and visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com experts.com.
1: hey you! Do you want to join the fastest-growing oil and gas network in Texas?
0: Ma'am, I'm all for growing my business.
1: So you've got my attention. What is it? Teek is the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition. They hold business mixers to help businesses grow and network. Any cost to join? For the next 90 days, it's completely free, no charge to join. But they do want like-minded individuals to attend who are interested in growing their business and networking. Well, I want to join. Where should I go? Go to shalemag.com slash teak. And click on the join link. Enter your information and we'll get you set up.
3: Join the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition at shalemag.com slash teak today. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S H A L E, mag, mag.com.
1: And now, David, it is time for us to bring on our guest, Carl Musen, who is the Director of Market. Legislative and Regulatory Policy with Varsilla. Carl, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show.
4: Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're really excited. This is the first time that you are joining our radio show. And you guys are a really big uh, global company, powerhouse, and so we're excited to talk to you. But before we bring you uh, onto the show and start asking all these questions about what you guys are doing, Tell us a little bit about, uh, give, give our listeners a few minutes about your background uh, of yourself and, of course, the company.
4: Yeah, sure. No problem. Happy to do so. So first off, I, I, I'll mention that I'm, I'm still relatively new to Wart. So I joined them about six months ago um, in, in my current role. I came from the California Independent System Operator. I was a senior advisor there working mostly on resource adequacy, renewable integration and grid planning exercises that happen all across California. Um, prior to doing my decade at the ISO, I did a, a few year stint at the California Public Utilities Commission, including some time uh, as an advisor to the President of the Commission. Um, even before that, I've, I've gotten into the industry now for about 20 years uh worked through the industry even through graduate school i, I did my phd at, at the ohio state university the ohio state <laughs> the ohio state university um, in in environmental uh, economics uh or agriculture environmental and development economics is the department is officially known as um at, at ohio state um wartsilla as a company is is actually a very old company we were founded in 1834 primarily uh, we were in the marine industry for most of our history, uh, but recently, within the last couple of decades, uh, really expanded into the uh, energy and engine uh, industry using the technologies that we learned from our marine base to provide electricity services. Right now, we have over 74 gigawatts of engines around 180 countries around the world. Uh, We've also recently leaped into the storage space and are a leader in that with 2.5, or over 2 gigawatts of uh, proposed built storage solutions and uh, system optimization software as well. So really kind of expanding our scope um, and expertise. But I think one of the most interesting things uh, that I found with Wartzilla, and really what we're here to talk about today is we have taken the time to actually develop in-house our own power system modeling expertise and we've used that expertise in over 180 countries again around the world to try and help understand uh paths to optimal uh optimal decarbonization futures Mm -hmm. um and and you know just really happy to share some of the information we've got from that
1: well we are excited to get into that conversation because this is the time of energy transition a lot of discussion on um net zero, decarbonization, and all of these different uh, discussions are going on at one time. It's kind of hard for, I guess, a person on the outside to try to understand what's going on. So let's start with the areas of business that you guys are in. You said earlier it's uh, electric power plants, but you also have a project in South Texas with South Texas Electric Co-op here in Texas. Tell us about Varsella and the technology that helped them remain up during the February snowstorm when, when all of us remember uh, Texas was on the national map because we were, ha- we were completely blacked out. How did that work out with you all being able to save power to the residents of South Texas?
4: Yeah, so Wartzilla has over a gigawatt of power plants in South Texas. And we are a Finnish company and those plants are built to the Finnish standard. So extreme weather in Finland, and extreme cold in Finland takes on kind of whole new definitions relative to what extreme cold in Texas would be. So we maintain our construction uh, of those plants to that standard. So they've got all the insulation in the building uh, to protect them from the elements, uh, be they hot or cold, uh, to make sure that they can operate and, and be up and running when they need them. One of the other things that we we run is we're running engines as opposed to some of the uh, aero turbine or the turbines that are, are operated um, uh, throughout many parts of the world as well, uh, the engines can operate on a much lower gas pressure, about 75 PSI uh, to maintain full output. So when the pressure dropped in some of the lines, uh, in some of the pipelines, we're still able to maintain operations through that. So again, all of the, the, the elements and operational attributes of the plant really allowed to work through some of those extreme conditions, both losing gas pressure and the cold weather.
2: I mean, it's so interesting that you do that, that you build these things to the finish standards here in South Texas, you know, where you, you don't really anticipate you're going to need that, right? And Governor Abbott uh, coming out of the regular session of the legislature said he, you know, he believed that the legislature had done everything it needed to do to fix all the issues on the grid and to improve reliability and avoid, uh, situations like like we saw in February. I, I just wonder, from Marcella's perspective, uh, if if y'all see uh, policymakers and the industries involved doing what's needed to be done to to really improve that grid reliability in the state.
1: And Carl, so the, and Carl, before you answer that, Carl. we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, it is an important question that David was asking because all of us in Texas still remember February storm and the legislators did try to do their best to fix a really severe problem. And so if Orsilla has a solution that uh, our Texas legislators need to look at, it's a pretty important topic. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to on the Wallpatch Radio Show and we'll be right back.
0: SR Trident is a veteran-owned and operated industrial construction company. Established in 2012 by co-founders Steven Snyder and Ryan Berthold, SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals are dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today, 361 361- 776-2662 or visit online at srtriden.com to request a bid proposal today.
3: D.C. and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org.
1: back you're listening to on the oil patch radio show our guest today is carl musen who is with wartsilla he is the director of marketing legislative and regulatory policy
2: yeah carl uh before the break we were talking about the situation in texas with our grid you know we had the terrible blackouts in february my house and i think kim's house as well were, were without power for four days uh during that during that winter storm and uh get your plant in South Texas, you know, y'all were able to st- stay up and running because of the way you, you know, you, the standards that you build your plants to. Uh, Governor Abbott is telling Texans that the legislature's really done all it needed to do to address the problems on the grid and, and now ERCOT and PUC are, are implementing new policies. And I'm, I'm just wondering from, from Mortilla's perspective, if you guys you know, see policymakers and the the companies involved uh, in the grid operations, doing what needs to be done to to help ensure reliability in the winter.
4: Yeah, so so I think the first thing that that we we should recognize is that the grid operators in ERCOT will always do what they need to do to maintain grid reliability. Again, having been at the California ISO through their own um, challenges as well with with blackouts, um, the grid operators deal with these shortfalls using the the tools available to them to make sure that the bulk power system the main transmission lines uh, stay intact. If that means shedding load as, as a last resort, you know, maintaining reliability and keeping the lights on are not always uh, the same thing. Right, um, right. You know it's it's a tough distinction. Um, so. I I think that, you know, a lot of credit has to be given to the ERCOT team and and the grid operators for managing this, a a very awful situation um, as best they could. Um, However, coming into the next winter, I think we have to recognize they're going to be, by and large, dealing with the same set of tools as, as what they had last winter. Correct. We've had a total of, you know, six months from kind of when the the, the the after fact assessments were completed eight months since the actual blackouts and we have a 70, 75,000 megawatt power system in ERCOT that they're running and six to eight months is just not an adequate time to really um, take care of all the winter weatherizing and, and upgrades that are needed to, um, to to make sure that if similar events happen this year, would they respond to them differently? almost certainly, but they're, they're going to have a similar set of tools with which they'd have to try and respond to them. Now, having said that, what the legislators and policymakers have done to try and um, incentivize and, and drive some of this weatherization is, is definitely a step in the right direction. We, we've definitely seen that the tails of, of weather distributions are, are getting wider, and so making sure that, you know, the resources are more capable of, of staying online under more extreme conditions is, is definitely a thing that, that we need to consider have they have they is there more that can be done i think there there's there's one final piece to this which is trying to establish kind of a uniform standard for retail providers in their procurement practices to make sure that they're not just hedging market prices but hedging uh reliability hedging that insurance policy that is getting that capacity x you know maybe a little more capacity needed so when Um, something does go wrong in the system that capacity is contracted, it's available. Um, There's a little bit more there than you may need under normal circumstances, but making sure that policy exists right now. um, You know, different retail providers will will measure that risk differently. So there's not kind of a uniform standard of how they hedge that insurance how they hedge those prices, they all have that a little bit different. But when ERCOT has to shed load off of a given circuit, they don't call people up and say, who's your retail provider? They, they shed load off a circuit. And so right. you don't right. have all that granularity there. And so there's different levels of reliability that customers may be uh, procuring in that space. And so trying to have some sort of uh, apples to apples, you know, there's still a, a whole lot of, of um, price competition that can happen and maintain that electric market that, that Texas has that robust retail shopping market um, BUT STILL HAVING A CONSISTENT STANDARD FOR RELIABILITY ACROSS THOSE uh, RETAIL PROVIDERS.
1: AND, CARL, you're, YOU'RE MAKING A GREAT POINT BECAUSE um, LIKE IN SAN ANTONIO IT'S REGULATED, but AND THEN I THINK AUSTIN, THE REST OF THE STATE IS DEREGULATED. And so uh, we saw these different, but even in San Antonio, the city public service still also experienced blackouts. And if they, you know, had been working with Marcella, it might have been a different outcome as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get on a study that caught our attention. It was the study on net zero and the formula that Marcella has come up with for a possible solution. You're listening to on the oil patch radio show. We'll be right back.
3: Shale oil and gas business magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website shalemag.com once again that's shale s h a l e mag mag.com to learn more shale is your one stop shop for growing your business pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188 again 210-240-7188
1: And we're back. You're listening to And the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Carl Musen, who is with Marcella. Carl, before the break, um, we talked a little bit about the Texas snowstorm, the blackout, and what y'all's role uh, and what you all played, Marcella, in uh, being able to keep the lights on and power for a specific part in Texas, South Texas, electric co-op. I want to switch gears because you guys recently released a study. The discussion is ways that the grid operators can move to a net zero posture more rapidly uh, and without major increases to the customer's bill, meaning utility bills are going to go up. Talk to us about the method uh, and how you're conducting that study and the general findings from it.
4: Yeah. So as I mentioned at the front end of of our conversation, Wartzilla in-house has built Uh, power system modeling expertise. And what that means is we are using a tool called Plexos, which is a a modeling tool that allows us to build, essentially in a computer, uh, the systems that we wanna find out how they operate. We can put into those systems, the different resources mix and the transmission lines and constraints that exist in that, and try and determine what the optimal path forward for capacity expansion is given certain goals. And in the case of the study that uh, I was most involved with in California, it was looking to get to California's uh, 100% RPS target by 2045. And so we took that tool and looked to see what the lowest cost uh, solution was to achieve those carbon reduction goals. And I think one of the things that we we learned through that study is. Um, two things are, are really key. The, the first is flexibility. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. But the other is kind of more uh, also a foundational principle that I think we, we've kind of lost a little bit of track of, which is balance. Uh, every portfolio that is balanced is a lower risk portfolio, be it your stock portfolio or your energy portfolio. So you diversify that amongst technologies, make sure that. You know what you have in one technology is is then supported and complemented by another one, so that your your overall risk profile is is spread across different points of of um, a potential failure. So any any region that relies too heavily on a single source is always at risk. It's not you know too heavily on solar, too heavily on wind. It can also be too heavily on on any single fuel source: gas, oil, coal. You know, right. hamsters on a wheel. Right. Um, So, trying to diversify and maintain that balance of a portfolio and having resources that complement one another. So, with the goal of moving to a carbon neutral future that California had, um, I think what you start to look at is when when you're trying to achieve that 100% goal that California has, trying to look at the um, renewable resources that you have available to you to build upon, and in California that's wind, solar, and hydro, And then finding out what resources to complement that and in order to do that you really need a thermal fleet that can move and shape to the renewables Uh, in the past year california iso has curtailed about 5 million megawatt hours of renewable energy it's just lost energy Um, and a large part of that comes in the need for maintaining ramping speed and ramping capability um, as you start to deal with the the now I don't know—is it famous or infamous? Duck curve, of of California, <laughs> um, but trying to move from from production periods where you have high solar production to swatching that uh, fairly rapidly drop off at the end of the day, and how do you have that flexibility to ramp up quickly enough to to meet that net load ramp that they have? Um, and so, building in complementary resources like you know, we added, we had, we found that. A great deal of storage technology would add intraday flexibility for ramping and, and megawatt-hour shifting from you know peak solar production to peak uh, load demands um, as those move later on into the evening. But we also found that the role of thermal fleet continued to be important. We saw uh, a transition from uh, through natural gas. Uh, we started to move that the production levels started to decrease as flexibility increased. So as you move natural gas from, you know, some uh, combined cycle uh, turbines to smaller, more flexible, uh, more readily start and stop type resources, um, their cap factors went down, carbon emissions went down, uh, solar production was was really harnessed. And so you were able to maintain a leaner fleet. Overall, you didn't have to maintain as much excess capacity uh, to try and get the same carbon emission reductions. What we also saw is that over time, you start to, you, you reach a point where you've, you've really tapped out um, 90 to 95% of the carbon emission reductions. And the question is how do you move to that last little bit? Because you need those long-term kind of thermal-based resources to provide what, what we kind of viewed as long-term storage. It's storage in, in a fuel as opposed to storage in a battery or, or something, and something that you can move across not just days, but seasons. Um, and we saw that that fuel source that was feeding those flexible um, capacity resources uh, transitioned away from fossil-based to hydrogen-based uh, through carbon-neutral processes, um, be them just you know pure hydrogen production or, or synthetic methane or, or methanol. Um, we kind of ran in all of those through the system. But we saw that transition start uh, probably around 2035 through 2045, we were able to achieve California's energy targets. Um, And when we ran it to try and reach carbon neutrality sooner by 2040, we saw that there were still cost savings uh, under our methodology relative to um, other approaches that California is exploring.
1: Carl, one question that I had, though, was pertaining to, so you're saying hydrogen. Some of the research that I've read discusses how hydrogen is not quite affordable at this moment to implement. That's why it hasn't really come in. Is your modeling looking at somewhere down the road it's going to be affordable in in the way of maybe say an abundance and so therefore it's a reliable that we will be using in the future was that part of that model as well
4: yes it was so so one thing to to note is when we're talking about the hydrogen base the model shows that the capacity expansion for wind and solar is, is actually well beyond what our peak forecasted load would be in california um and what that excess solar would go to do is basically fuel the uh, hydrogen production processes at zero uh, marginal cost fuel. So the energy input that is a very high source of those costs for hydrogen production can be basically driven to the cost of, of, you know, procuring excess wind and solar from the system.
1: Very interesting. Carl, we're going to take a quick break when we come back. We want to get on the study uh, again and looking at specifically California. You're listening to an okay. oil patch radio show. We'll be right back.
0: The 23rd World Petroleum Congress brings the global industry to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, December 5th through 9th, 2021, for a week of forward-looking conversation that will shape the future of energy. The Congress will be centered around the theme of innovative energy solutions, drawing inspiration from the innovative spirit of the industry over the decades. Delegates can expect robust strategic, technical, and U.S. programs with perspectives from government leaders, CEOs, academia, and other expert speakers on the industry trends, as well as creative solutions and best practices to address current energy challenges. delegates will have the opportunity to attend industry inside luncheons and numerous networking events that will build new professional relationships and strengthen existing ones. Also, they can explore the Congress exhibition where leading international companies will showcase their innovations. Make your mark at the World Petroleum Congress and be a part of the beginning of what's next. To learn more and register, visit www.23wpchouston.com. That's www.23wpchouston.com.
1: We're back here listening to and the all patch radio show our guest today is carl musen who is the director of marketing legislative regulatory policy for warsella
2: hey carl uh, you you went through a lot of information there about uh yeah. you know what what uh, your modeling shows needs to happen over the next one 24 years i guess in california to to get to that net zero posture uh with their with their uh, grid um you know a lot of that is is going to require I think policy intervention right talk about that I mean you have experience in that realm I think over there in California what kind of uh, you know policy initiatives are going to be required there in California to to facilitate uh, this this what is really an evolution uh, in their grid fleet
4: yeah so so right now the, the big driver in California is kind of the omnibus proceeding at the California Public Utilities Commission that is their integrated resource planning process it's very unique in california um, in the sense that typically integrated resource planning processes focus on single utilities um, california's does not california takes in its its three large utilities uh pg and southern california edison and san diego gas and electric and kind of brings them all together so it's, it's actually looking at the state as a whole and in addition to um, the main utilities, it also has what are called community choice aggregators. These are similar to municipalities in some regards, but still um, working with the CPUC to make sure it's reaching environmental and, and procurement policy goals. So taking, working through that process um, and, and kind of acknowledging that, that, you know, Winston Churchill's foresight was, was pretty apt, which is, you know, he who fails to plan plans to fail and, and really working <laughs> through that that process as a whole, and saying, well, you know, we can't just arrive at 2045 and be carbon neutral. And we can't just immediately jump to a system that that's carbon neutral. So how do we effectively make that transition? What changes do we need to make? Um, And thinking about what steps in the process as far as like, how do we add the flexibility to the system, the flexible, you know, reliable, dispatchable, resources we need and, and convert those to a carbon neutral future that that's the process primarily in california where that will happen it's it's a fascinating process to be yeah. a part of um it's it's currently trying to take steps of you know 10-year increments um to to get to that end goal but that's the the big place where it will happen
2: well let's 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 move uh j- just to a slightly different subject here because we we're recording this Just a few days before the COP26, the UN's big climate conference, convenes in Glasgow and President Biden's flying over there. But but here's what else is happening. China's not going to participate. Russia's not going to participate. India's only sending a a very modest delegation to it. These are three of the four biggest polluting countries on the face of the earth, not really even participating in in the conference in a meaningful way. Uh, at the same time, African nations are becoming concerned with this overarching, I think, uh, transition narrative that is so heavily focused on forcing countries to use more and more wind and solar power. And, and I think uh, the best example of that frustration was this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week by the president of Uganda that that said basically forcing these developing countries in Africa to go to wind and solar power. Uh, forces poverty in Africa, and he asks, a, a, I think, a really legitimate question, which is, why should African nations forego the use of cheap and reliable, consistent, you know, uninterruptible energy uh, from fossil fuels that all of the development nations have used for all these decades, and be forced, you know, to to rely so heavily on wind and solar? And I just wonder if, if, you know, how that how does that impact? you know, this, I think what is a growing frustration with the overarching transition narrative, um, how does that impact the thinking within Wartzilla as you go through these modeling processes and you look out 25 years and it, it just, it just seems like the the, the landscape is changing right now yeah. in in this whole debate. And uh, I just wonder what kind of challenges that creates for you guys internally at Wartzilla.
4: Yeah, I I think it it works. So, you know, we, in our modeling uh, experience, and again, one of the um, countries that we did study was India in in our front loading um, carbon zero was, um, or not zero was, and and we found a similar story, which was that the lowest cost solution kind of followed this a similar path, which is, you know, you you start with your planning process, um, you start to build out the wind and solar, to the extent that the existing portfolio can take on that, that variability, you build that out as you start to tap that out, you start to add storage. And then next you move towards the transitioning of, of that, you know, thermal fossil fleet, um, to more flexible, a more flexible fleet. So some of those less flexible resources, um, kind of move away and are, are replaced with, Um, low-emitting resources that that ultimately have some level of of ability to convert to uh, alternative fuel sources, such as the ones we talked about earlier. Um, I I think we found that to be a very common theme across the the countries that we've studied. And so, to the end of, you know, trying to provide low-cost, reliable energy, uh, it all starts with that plan, which is to say, the better we plan towards this goal, we can still maintain uh, reasonable costs and make carbon neutrality affordable for the average everyday ratepayer.
2: I've just yes. got one last question about the modeling, too. When you talk about battery storage, um, you know, right now I think the prevailing technology is lithium ion. And uh, I know other alternative technologies are in development, like liquid metal batteries and things like that. Um, in your modeling process, do, do you make any kind of, of assumptions about whether the technology, prevailing technology will continue to be lithium ion? Or do you do you work into that uh, that modeling process any sort of quantum leap in technology that makes it, you know, the, the storage, uh, um, I guess, you know, more robust than, than the lithium ion technology?
4: Um, I think that the challenge in our model is not really the megawatts so much as the megawatt hours and so whether it's lithium Uh ion or or something that can move uh the the megawatt hours for four to six to eight hours across a day or or a couple days ultimately doesn't isn't really the driving factor of of how we reach that carbon neutrality there are benefits of longer duration storage within a day from a load profile and and how much capacity you build to meet peaks um but one of the other things that we saw is that the biggest benefits came uh, from being able to shift energy season to season. So getting megawatt hours out of the springtime and moving them to the to the, to the summer, and that's just something that we weren't seeing uh, the battery technologies just from a scale standpoint. Moving hundreds of thousands right. of megawatt hours to another season that's just best done storing it in a different form. Yeah, because to to ship those megawatt hours in a battery, you have to build all the batteries. Right, right. Um, and and that was really kind of where we saw some of the benefits of having those alternative carbon neutral fuels um, in the in the latter uh, years of of the models we ran.
1: Well, Carl, so interesting. Yes, it, it has thank been you. a very thank you. thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. You you guys are doing a great job in helping solve some of the energy problems for the future and we do look forward to having marcella back on and you to talk a little bit more about this uh research that you guys are doing but that is all the time we have for this show thank you again for being a guest on the oil patch radio show
4: very happy to be here today. I can take you
3: again. Thank you. In the oil patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host Kim Bolatto will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.